Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, that's just one example. But there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, And if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, Thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. I'm happy to discuss that. I just want to know. Yeah, let's just get going here. Kevin, where do you argue with people on the internet is what is what Joe and I want to know. <laughs> well, let, we're, we're interviewing you today. This is oh, okay. Yeah, well, I'm sure Joseph has a lot of pointed questions for me that I don't want to answer in front of It's people. Facebook, right? <laughs> You're on Facebook. Yeah, um, yeah it's on Facebook, it, you know, and sometimes Twitter. Uh, I'm not a big Twitter guy, but um, basically what has happened is you, you were at my house when we were pretty young in our early 20s and, and yeah that would be i mean i think we were figuring 1992 1993 yep like so i was i was 22 and that you know santa rosa was it was kind of a cow town so I, I you know i still know a lot of these these people that i grew up with that are not exactly uh seeing eye to eye with me and my politics and many of them have moved out of california over the years so you know you say a few things i i got called a, a demorat today and I was demorat. Like, that's good yeah so anyone demorat. that disagrees with trump gets a name but does anybody so, think that calling someone a Democrat really hurts their feelings? I mean, if someone called me that, who cares? You know, I, I, I mean, I, I just my response to that usually, like yeah, that. Is, is like stay classy. So, anyway, let's do our normal intro, uh, Joshua, and All get right. this thing rolling because I got. That's I got, why I left Facebook though, because I just couldn't mentally handle that anymore. So, what uh, social media then do you re- retain a presence on? Instagram. Okay. I like photo. I like photos of cats and and uh but i ruined i had i suspended myself from instagram for a little while because i ruined it for myself by getting fucking crazy on there uh what what crazy do you do on instagram i mean i was just posting graffiti about killing cops and stuff and it just it got a little weird in the comments and i realized this is my bad like (laughs) yeah um, I, I have a general rule of thumb where I don't engage in posting anything that would encourage violence. So I was um, really, you know what? I thought about it. Me. I was like, Hey, what? This is just graffiti. And then I was like, you know what? This is so charged. Like I'm being an asshole. Uh, there's a better way to talk about this than just posting kill cops on my Instagram page. So, so we, we should, we should outtake this and put it just on YouTube. Maybe so, we will, maybe we won't. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your co-host Joshua and I am joined as always by your co-host Kevin. And today we have jo- Joseph Gervaisi from Philadelphia on the show. Um, 
Joseph has engaged in many, many, many creative activities, uh, including Loud Fast Philly, which was an interview archive of various punks in what they are doing today. So he kind of led the charge on our format as well, because we try to stick to today as much as possible, even though oftentimes our guests kind of veer off. Um, one thing I do want to just read, because I think it's really fantastic, is uh, you had a mission statement on, on Loud Fast Philly. Uh, the Loud Fast Philly interview archive is concerned with the right here, right now. While in part the interviews are concerned with the past, there is always a clear-eyed view into the future as well as a discussion of how the DIY ethos that remains core, the core of punk, continues to shine through these individuals and shine it does for the charisma and the positivity of these folks with whom I've had the honor to speak is practically luminous. Uh, and then you talk a bit about nostalgia as well. And, you know, I just want to say from my point of view, this, that's like amazing because I do like, I'm completely inspired as well by many of the people that I've known for many years, but primarily about what they're doing now, you know? And so, and it seems like that's sort of a thread in your work, Joseph. Um, um, so talk a little bit about how you got involved in punk and, um, and maybe how it led you to these, uh, these projects. Cause there's, there's many others. I mean, you're a filmmaker as well as, uh, you, you have a incredible DVD archive and many, many other archives, photos, interviews, et cetera. So, uh, why don't you just give us a little backstory first and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into. Yeah, like how did you get things. into music? Were your parents yeah. into music? Uh, they were not particularly into music. They listened to some doo-wop and things when I was a kid, but they, they were not big music people. Uh, but as a kid, I, I was a monster kid. I loved horror films. What does that mean? It means that I, I loved monsters. I loved horror films and science fiction and, oh, fantasy okay. and all of that. And I was born in 71. Uh, and by the late 70s and early 80s, I was putting ads in monster magazines to find pen pals to talk about my favorite movies and, oh, and all of this. And this definitely primed me for later having tape trading and stuff through punk. So I would write to different people around the world in the country about all of this stuff. And, and I love this. I love getting the letters and talking to these different folks and exchanging our, our school photographs and, and all this. Where but would you get letters from? I would get letters from around the U.S. a lot in the Midwest. Uh, there were a few people overseas. I, I wrote to a guy in Japan who then wrote a book of uh, a poster gallery book of um, Japanese film posters. Uh, wow. I would write to writers that I liked, like little fan letters, and they would often write back to me. And some of them who weren't particularly popular writers would be really taken aback that somebody wrote them a fan letter and they'd send me signed books and things. It was great. And as I got a little bit older into my teenage years, most of those relationships faded away and I didn't continue to write to most of those people. But there was one guy that I had kept a relationship with um, named James Walker. And he, um, by the time I was in my teenage years, when I was 15, I had become, I fell in love with progressive rock and psychedelia, 60s psych, 70s prog. Um, and this like what? what's, a, what's an example of like a 70s prog? Uh, say Yes or Peter Gabriel, Aerogenesis, uh, things okay. like that. Um, so really sort of artsy music because I, I didn't feel like I related very well to the music of the eighties, which was about getting girls and driving cars. I wasn't doing any of those things, but <laughs> I liked literature and cinema and art and things. So that was all being reflected in that sort of music. So that spoke to me on that level. Um, but when I wrote to this James Walker guy at the time, he was in the air force and we would exchange these audio tapes to each other where we would just talk for, he would talk for an hour or two hours, sometimes three hours. 
and I would do the same thing with him. And I wait, you would record like like almost like a like a single person podcast. Like you would just like talk chain it. Like here's what I'm thinking about this and that yeah, and yeah, whatever. Exactly, yeah. Like a long form letter, and then he would send you one back. Yeah, I would get a C ninety and from him, and he would have a ninety minute monologue, and then I would do the same thing back to him. And That's my beautiful. brother Bull, who is also punk and was in a bunch of bands and stuff, also a great person to talk to for this because as an adult, he's done great things. He would have his little Bull's corner, but you know he was a lot younger, so he would only talk for a minute. Like, oh, I went skateboarding today and went to school, you know. And then that would be about <laughs> it. Um, but I knew that this guy was into punk to some degree, and I didn't really know much about what that music was, but I was curious, and I had him make me a tape of the Sex Pistols. Um, and when I heard it, my brain was definitely fertile ground for this. So when that seed hit, it exploded, because the vibrancy and the urgency of the music, and it was political, and it was speaking to something, I mean, this was 10 years on. So I wasn't so concerned with anarchy in the UK or the Queen. None of those things made any difference to me living in working class suburban New Jersey. However, it was saying something and it was saying something with such drive and force that I was just absolutely thrilled by it. And even more excited to find out that this thing from 10 years ago was actually still alive. So that there was still a version of this Mm -hmm. that was still that was producing music, that was an active scene that I could be a part of. So Mm -hmm. finding then hardcore for me was an even bigger deal because this was relating to subjects that I could understand, the subjects of a person living in America in the 1980s. Um, It expressed these these utopian ideas. It was uh, was just absolutely thrilling. So something like hearing Seven Seconds and Upright Citizens and, uh, you know, a lot of like political bands at the time, MDC, that was the thing that it, that said to me, wow, this is something you could actually join in on. It's still happening. The way you talk about punk, the way you just talked about punk reminds me so much of the way kids used to talk about like NWA, like when they showed up and were t- and like, these people are talking about like our lives instead of this, like, like you said, cars and girls and things like that. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Once you see yourself reflected in something, you also see that you could be doing what this other person does because they're not that different than you. You know, the stage gets a little bit lower and you get a little bit higher. And when you begin to meet, when your eyes meet directly, instead of looking up, then you're inspired to go forward and be a participant rather than merely a you know consumer of this thing. Yeah. What teenager doesn't go to his first punk show and go, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I was, yeah. As a kid, I was intimidated. I remember before I left uh, my, to my first show, which was at this place called Club Pizzazz in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is a fairly violent city now, actually, especially more so in the last year. But at the time, it was much worse. It was in a really bad part of town. It took a lot of effort to get there as a kid who didn't drive with other kids. Uh, and I remember my father was in the shower as I was about to leave. And he said, are you going to be doing some of that slam dancing? <laughs> I, I don't know. I was wearing a seven second shirt, my little cutoff shorts, and I just didn't know what I was going to yeah. be walking into. And I was, I walked into a complete, completely chaotic scene of people jumping on each other's heads. And it was bananas. And it wasn't what I expected, but it was interesting. Yeah. And that was the beginning. And it, it's, it's like, it hooks you too, right? You, you, it, my first show wasn't what I expected. My first show was at the probably at the Hungry Brain in Detroit, 
And uh, but how did you wind I, up in Detroit from from Santa Rosa? Well, my dad worked for a company called Taubman when I was a kid, and they ha- they owned and managed shopping centers. So he got transferred from time to time to go because he was a manager. So he would go kind of like fix problems and reset the staff. And he just was like, every, he just passed away in July, but he, everyone that ever worked with him loved him because he was such a kind of a mentor guy. Um, but we were there for a few years and I was just getting into punk, uh, just before that, I was a freshman in high school and the, the, the couple of years before that I had kind of, you know, gone to a few shows here and there, you know, kind of nothing like serious though. Just like somebody was playing in somebody's backyard kind of stuff. But, um, some friends of mine took me down to the hungry brain and I saw, uh, it was in, I think it was 1986, the Deglo abortions toured with raw power from Italy. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine's that band was opening. Combination, by the way. And uh, it was, it was, it was. Detroit was an incredibly violent city at that time in 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 the mid eighties. And um, uh, you know the the auto industry was crashing, so we had a lot of working class people just wandering the streets, basically, you know, and pissed off. And so uh, it was interesting. I mean, there was there was a there was a very very serious skinhead contingent there. There was a lot going on in those days, and. You know, I didn't know what, you know, here I am in like you know, <laughs> downtown Detroit at the Hungry Brain, uh, you know, 15, 16 years old, probably 15. And just like, I could not believe it, but I, I never wanted to stop after that, you know? And so similar story. It wasn't what I expected, but it was amazing. And uh, obviously raw power was just something else, especially in the punk scene at that time, because they were playing that kind of like early, like transition to metal kind of stuff, yeah. you know, and it was, it was it was hard and fast. Yeah. Um, so, um, so you, you couldn't just sit on the sidelines though. I mean, that's, I think that's the most important thing. And that's part of the reason why this interview for me is so interesting because even the way we met, it wasn't like you were just like, you know, kind of hanging out. We met somewhere randomly at a show. You guys like were touring the U S going to different places, staying in punk houses, you know, like you were all in almost right away. Um, who's you guys, uh, so he was with two friends, um, or three actually. I think there was a woman with you as well, right? Yeah, yeah. My friend Kathy was with me. Yeah, who and then was my girlfriend. Uh, but yeah, yeah, and Doug was with you, yeah, um, who I had met on tour, and probably was the reason you all were staying with us. But who knows? Because everybody yeah, knew each other back in those days. Because I don't think I had a, a, a prior connection to you. Yeah, and then uh, who else was with? There was someone else with you that played in a lot of bands. Uh, was that Andrew who was uh, with me? Yeah, That's Andrew was with that. you from yeah. from Limprist, right? Yeah, Limprist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, Doug probably wrote me because him and I were pen pals after we 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 met in Kalamazoo at a show, an engage engage show, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, was he naked we were playing. Time? We played with Damodal from Milwaukee or or uh, somewhere in Wisconsin, um, and then uh, John Henry West played that show actually, and so we all like. We basically all like became friends. In fact, I'm in a band now with John Bauer from John Henry West. So, oh, nice. um, yeah, but um, I mean, you were all in. I mean, you, you you all. I mean, you you basically even when when there was no band involved, you were touring the country, going going to punk houses, like hanging out, writing, doing zines. You started a, a collective in in um, in Philly that that booked shows for years. Uh, you were one of the co-founders of. Um, you know, so, I mean, what, what is it in you that gives you that drive? Cause it's a, it's a very, you know, there's a, a lot of people in punk do a lot, but 
dude, you know, I mean, sometimes when I see your postings and I'm like looking at the other stuff you're doing and you're like, oh yeah. And I just renewed my, you know, my symphony, you know, annual subscription. And I'm just like, dude, slow down. <laughs> and I'm the same way. Like I'm nonstop as Joshua can tell you, but like, I, like what, what is it? What do you think it is in your, where did you get that in your, in your kind of personality that makes you so driven to do all, I mean, it's, and it's all like, just to be blunt, it's inspiring. It's fun. It's like awesome stuff. Thank you. Uh, well, I think the problem that we had when we were kids is that we didn't have immediate access to these things that we wanted. We didn't really have money. So we, it was mm-hmm. hard to buy records. So we had to do paper routes and save money. My allowance was 50 cents a week. And then it eventually got up to $2 a week. So I would you know, do the paper routes. We wanted to go to shows, but we couldn't always get into Philly to see the things. So the thought was, well, DIY is the guiding principle of punk. Maybe we should try to do our own shows. It can't be impossible. Uh, mm-hmm. if these other Ubers are doing it. And we found that a lot of the, the ethics that we were developing as kids, what we liked about punk wasn't necessarily being reflected in the shows that we saw. So there was a lot of violence, which I didn't think was cool. I thought was lame uh, and was hurting people and was keeping really interesting, creative people pushed out because they didn't want to get uh, clobbered on the head. Sure. Uh, so we wanted to try to do something that reflected what we thought punk was supposed to be because we grew up reading these lyric sheets and the ideas that the lyric sheets expressed were, were so clear and so inspiring. When we weren't seeing that in person, we wanted to try to make them happen at our own events. So we started doing shows in South Jersey, which is where I grew up. It's right outside of Philly at an old Art Deco movie theater. It had been built in the 1930s. It had a stage for vaudeville performances they were showing second run films. Uh, there were rats running through the aisles. The floors were sticky. It was run by a, a kid whose father was supposedly in the mafia. And he gave the kid this thing because the kid was a jerk off. And this was just supposed to be like his little project running this theater. So they would basically be open to anything if you paid them and you didn't destroy the theater. So we could get a really garbage vocal PA, set it up on the stage bring in bands, mostly our friends at first, and people could slam dance in the narrow aisles between, you know, where the seats were. Um, and then somebody from the theater would come out and try to stop it, and everybody would stop for a second, and then they start jumping around again. But it got to a point where we could have Born Against playing their uh, Neurosis on one of their early tours, and we would bring in actual touring bands so that we didn't have to try to get to see them in Philly, and at the same time going to these Philly shows. And it worked. And the shows that we did in South Jersey drew in a really odd assortment of people who weren't necessarily punk. They were often the gay kid who felt like he was a little left out, the artsy person, the goth kid, like all of these other people who just wanted the place where everybody was nice. And that's what we wanted to project to people was, welcome, come on in, you know, we like you. And when we began to get older, when we were able to move to the city, uh, we started the Cabbage Collective and that was right. based on those principles. And I had been to Gilman Street and we were going to shows at ABC No Rio in New York. So these spaces were inspirational to us and we didn't want, there was a great brain drain of creative people who would go to the Bay Area, who would leave our area because that's where it was all happening. And we didn't want to think that you had to go there to have these type of shows, that we could have them in the city as mm-hmm. as Philadelphia. You know, we're centered between New York above us and D.C. below us. So bands would come through touring. There's been a consistent hardcore punk scene, you know, since the late 70s or 
whatever. Um, so Philly could do this. Um, and that's when we began to do shows there. And one of the first things I just wanted to say that we wanted to establish was um, to have a, a manifesto, a statement of what we stood for. And it was this 10 point manifesto that's, that stated what the Cabbage Collective was about. So that people coming in knew what we stood for and what we stood against, which I always think is as important as what you stand for, so that we could set the scene. And when people came in, they knew what to expect. And I also knew that we welcomed them there, provided they weren't there to see Kyle, kick people in the head, you know, do any of the crap that we didn't want to see happening at events that we did. We didn't want to provide a soundtrack to mm. their violence. Hmm. And it, largely it worked. And we managed to pull off several years of bands coming in from all over the place and people setting up tables with vegan food and having zines and, and really having it reflect what we wanted to see in punk. And the hope that these events would lay little seeds in other people's heads. Mm -hmm. They would take them forward for you know, all manner of projects, not necessarily just punk. Well, I think that's the interesting thing. And one of the things we talk about a lot is that basically everything that I needed to learn to do my adult life, I learned from punk. You I, know, I would, like, yeah, absolutely. Um, putting on shows, I, I manage events at my space in San Francisco. You know, promoting, obviously, we now are promoting the, the podcast, but, you know, I learned all that from posting flyers all over town and ha handshakes and hellos to people, you know, yeah. and that, that's another thing. I'm, you know, I do sales too. And I, I have to say that, like, promoting my band taught me how to do sales and connect with people, right? Um, and then just survival, taking care of your community, you know, doing things like, you know, when, uh, when you talk about people setting up vegan food tables, like working with food, not bombs to show up to shows and be part of the scene and, and, you know, encourage people to eat good, healthy, free food so that they maybe carry that into their own lives, you know, giving out literature on, on causes that people may not know anything about. I mean, you know, I think that's all and it, it, it sort of, the, I feel like there was like this sort of like small, but always growing group of people all over the country that were doing those things. And, and, you know, I, 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 you know, the cabbage collective was definitely one of them that was, it was like a, you could pinpoint it. And at that time and say, you know, if you want to play a show that, that has the same, you know, not, not necessarily the Bay area feel, but the feel of community, um, that's where you do it in Philly. You don't, you don't play any of the, the bigger venues or you don't, you don't like necessarily play, try to get that show with a big touring band. You know, you play with bands that you would play without here avail born against, you know, bands that are like, they're touring constantly and, and doing, doing different things, not necessarily all the same, even as far as their politics and, and what they were doing. I, I just like that sort of project, I think sort of carries over into the things that you've done the, 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 the past few years and rumor has it, when I say rumor, that means you and I text each other that you have a new, a new project that you're working on. And, you know, of course, we're going to want to hear a, a lot about that. But you're, you're also a writer. You're, you're really involved in local politics as far as, you know, you know, like promoting uh, candidates that you care about. Um, you know, I would like to, you know, obviously we give as much credit to punk as we can on, on those issues as well. I mean, I think being active, um, as a youth really carries over into your adult life. I've seen a lot less burnout from, from like formerly politically active punk kids that are doing cool shit now, whether I agree with them or not, it's just good to see them still involved. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about some of your writing, um, the films, 
Yeah, you got to I mean, we could probably be on for a few hours if we really wanted to, but you know, obviously we have a we have a bit of a time limit, but talk a little bit about what else you you did after after Cabbage Collective and some of the the other cool projects that you worked on that that really, you know, that you're proud of cuz you got a lot to be proud of, man. Thank you. Um well, I I think that punk was like a school for me because I didn't go to college and I I knew as a kid that college was not going to be an open opportunity to me. And I felt like this was the way that I would learn to do stuff. And it was tremendously inspirational for me to see that I, as a basically a nobody, could do events that people would come to and would have an effect. And I could write a zine and people would read it around the world. And I could go travel to all these places. Punk opened every door to me in my life. And the reverberations from punk have moved through all of the other projects that I've done. So even things that don't appear to have a connection to punk, if I have an involvement with it, I'm going to bring what I learn, what skills I've developed into it, and the ethos as much as possible to try to change the tone, even in a, in a very subtle way, towards something that I think is reflective of those ideals. So when I came to, after Cabbage Life, they kind of played itself out by the, the late 90s and the demands of bands had changed a lot you know we we started doing shows in the in the very late 80s in new jersey cabbage Collective started in the early 90s and we did that up until about 1997 there were a couple other shows after that that were maybe cabbage collective shows but essentially we did a really big show with uh spaz and brutal truth and adamant's package and some other bands that was essentially what i considered to do the last of those shows and at that time i came together with a different group of friends with the idea of showing films, uh, cult films, uh, weird Italian horror films, things like that, uh, on the big screen, the show 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter prints of these movies, initially just as a one-off. And then because of the way that um, there was a, such a response to it, to do it uh, in, to do it repeatedly and then create a group, which was, came to be uh, exhumed films. And we used the same theater that we started off as with the punk show. So this is the Harwin theater in Mountie from New Jersey crummy art deco theater now even more crummy because another decade has gone by <laughs> um so the level of dilapidation you know had had increased also probably the level of desperation from the people running it and they let us do the the, the initial film screenings there until they went out of business i think they're a right aid or a parking lot or something now as, as so it goes um but of the four people that I started with Zoom Films with, one of the other ones was also involved in punk, and he had taken part in some of the Cabbage Collective events. We did some spoken word shows, and he told some really funny stories, and he was a teacher, and he, he has a certain level of charisma. So when we first started doing these film screenings, a lot of the people that came out to them were complete yahoos. They would come in drunk and stoned. They had watched Mystery Science Theater, so they thought it was acceptable to scream things at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> number one was not funny not clever and also <laughs> expensive so people who came in to see the movies were taken aback by the behavior of these other people and we realized we needed to put a stop to that really soon otherwise it would just be horrible so we managed to kind of meld the audience into into what we wanted to see at these events which is enjoy them you know they're funny you can laugh no running dialogues. And we wanted this also to be a welcoming environment because that scene was not necessarily the most progressive scene. But in the years that we did these events where we would always stand in front of the audience and introduce the films and contextualize them. So even if we were showing something that could be perceived by some audiences as being 
misogynistic or offensive in some way, if we were able to put it into a certain context, people could relax a little bit in viewing it, um, see it for what it is, and it wouldn't inspire the worst of behavior from the people who were viewing it. So in that way, we could kind of put some of these ethics into a different group of people. Because I've always felt that social engineering is really important, uh, where if you can present yourself in a certain way and have some sort of positive influence on people, that that could shift the tone. And even a slight shift of tone could make a big difference. And ultimately, that's what wound up working with those screenings. And I remained involved in film because I like to eat and live in a house. And by doing these events and then later starting a business, Diabolic DVD that sold discs, I was able to live. You know, I was able to run a business mm-hmm. that supported me. Um, there weren't a lot of other options available. Um, and I kept involved in film. Uh, one of the projects was something called the Valerie Project, which was uh, there was a, a Czechoslovakian film from 1970, this beautiful, dreamy fairy tale art film that I loved. And I really wanted people to be able to see the movie. Um, I had screened it, but there was also the idea of what if we could get musicians together to perform an alternate score for it, although mm. its existing score is beautiful, but to drop the sound and have a whole new 70 minute live score, uh, performed with a full, um, orchestra sized cello and all of these, it was a, like an 11 person band of these musicians who had been involved in different psychedelic folk bands and stuff. And that was fantastic. Nothing to do with punk but just a really satisfying experience to expose people to not only this beautiful music, but this amazing piece of film. And that thing wound up going all over the place. It was at the world festival hall in London. That's a lot of work. It was a tremendous pain in the ass. Um, Have you guys ever played a show for 170 minutes straight? A a single performance? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, mean, I, I should say I'm not a musician, so I didn't perform any of this stuff. I mean, this no, was, I know, but just uh, sounds like yeah, no, it was, it was <laughs> doing set, anything for 170 uh, minutes, <laughs> minutes. So yeah, it wasn't quite that torturous, uh, but very hard to keep it perfectly in sync with the film. Sure. Uh, and it involved eventually having a relationship with the uh, film archive in the Czech Republic, who had to provide a print, and it was very. It was a very delicate and, and difficult situation moving all of the musical equipment around and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it paid off. I mean, it's all, there's a Criterion DVD and Blu-ray that we got interviewed for, and the music is on. And it's 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 great to know that it still exists in, in some way now in the present. Yeah, that's amazing. It's um, really amazing. Really <clears throat> amazing. I mean, what a project, too. It must have felt so good to actually see it come to fruition as well. Like... I mean, that's the kind of stuff when I say like, I'm, and I'm, you know, I, I, I've, <laughs> we've had a few people like tell me I get too positive on this show, but like, this is exactly the kind of stuff that like, it just, it's like the world is really fucked up right now. I'm not even going to deny it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend like things are going fantastic for the, for the, for planet earth right now, especially in the U S but when I hear stuff like this, I'm just like, man, you know what? There is hope. Like people want to like, continue to archive and put out art for others to see and like restore things that are beautiful and then add more beauty to it by adding a live band. I mean, that's, that is the stuff that's like, that is, that's in, in my opinion, that's the jam. Um, you're still doing stuff though with the, 
with um, Exum Films, right? Aren't you doing drive-in movies now or something? Yeah, I don't participate so much in what Exhumed is doing now. I mean, Exhumed has been around since 1997. It's consistently yeah. done events. So that's over 20 years of screenings yeah. at various venues. Uh, the high points being a series of 24-hour film festivals that we did that was right. 24 hours straight, no breaks, all on film, in a theater. Absolutely torturous. I mean, for people who <laughs> like to sit in their own filth for 24 hours eating uh, trash bag size Cheetos. That's fine. And I'm glad that they enjoy it personally. <laughs> beyond <laughs> A movie, but 24 hours is beyond my capacity. Um, yeah, that's a lot of time because of the, the venue that we had used most recently for the last few years, closing and then mm-hmm. shifting over to a new space and then COVID coming in, no film screenings at all in, in Philadelphia. Um, but fortunately, we've had, we've had a long relationship with the driving theater that's hours outside of the city somewhere in a rural area that I've only been to uh, maybe once. So some of the other members of the group run those events, and they've been able to do nice. something fun with that because now people can still see projected films in the safety and comfort of their automobile. And we've also brought out some guests. Um, so uh, uh, different des- guests have been flown in and then they've kept at a, a certain social distance from the people so that it remains um, fun. Uh, what do the guests do? They like talk about the film beforehand and stuff? Yeah, Bruce Campbell was one of the guests, so he was the star. Ah, we had what? him in our previous years. Also, the nicest guy. I mean, he's yeah, I heard. I've heard that before. Yeah. <sighs> it's, you know, we've met over the years various luminaries of the world of fantastic film. Some of them not that great. I mean, some of them have been very <laughs> difficult people. But fortunately, most of them have been very nice. And Bruce Campbell has been one of the nicest. And he's someone that uh, you can go either way because he's, you know, fairly famous and kind of prickly. But no, he was always great with us signing everything up until five o'clock in the morning and all this. So he came out a couple of weeks ago and did this social distancing tour. And people could have pictures taken with him at a you know, a certain amount of space in between. And um, it, it was nice. I think that it's the people have really needed something to do during the pandemic. Um, and this has been something that, you know, it's a, it's definitely the horror film world of Exhumed Films is definitely a big community. A lot of the people have come for many years and it's a pretty diverse community. We've had a lot of punks involved in that scene, but there's also just a lot of other types of people uh, it's really spread across a lot of different types of folks and they've become friends and people have gone on their first dates there, got married and brought their kids. You know, if you do anything for 20 something years, you begin to see generations of involvement. Um, so I think it's meant a lot for people to leave their house, something that I haven't been able to do that much and probably, you know, the same thing for the two of you and go to an event with people and not feel guilty that you're going to be passing the virus along, but just be able to enjoy it. And, um, so that's been happening, but I haven't been directly involved in that. Well, I mean, it's great that the, that the collective has carried on though. Right. I mean, that's a, that's, that's kind of a, when you look at any organization, especially something that's like a, a nonprofit or a collective or a group of people, especially around artistry that can last over 20 years, that says something about the foundation in which it was built because, you know, I, working in nonprofit for years and being on like boards of directors and other things here in the city, I just like how sort of the leadership part of things go. And it's funny because we just talked about this in in our last interview, the non turnover of leadership or founding members 
causes more problems than it does good most of the time. And so the fact that you're like, yeah, they're still doing awesome stuff. I'm just not that involved is actually like, that's exactly what we were talking about in our last episode and how awesome that is when the sort of the, the torch gets passed. Right. Yeah. Um, um, so you also have the, your, your DVD business, um, that you started yeah, and yeah, yeah that's, and, that's been running for uh, about 20 years as well. And that is my main job. I mean, I spend all day, every day in my basement, sending out packages. And I think people are always surprised that people still buy physical media. These people definitely still buy physical media. Yeah. I mean, if there well, was these are the you... cheat, yeah, these are the guys with the Cheetos, right? Yeah, yeah, the Cheetos people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they're not going to be satisfied with the digital download. No, no, of no, their no. Favorite film. I mean, but you know, probably both of you are some degree of record collector. You know, I'm it, a bit of a Cheetos person. Okay, yeah. so you understand. You know, totally. the physical object has has meaning, has value, has an aesthetic quality to it. If if my business operated a physical store in the city of Philadelphia. It would have been out of business in a year because there's not enough people concentrated in that area to support it. Open it up to the entire world, a world of collectors. It doesn't make a difference if most of the world likes digital streaming. There's enough people spread around the world to support a business that has a physical media. So I just put objects in boxes and mail them to people around the world. And uh, I continue to eat, which is really nice. Well, and there's things that you can't get from a digital release too. And sometimes they update stuff in movies when they release it digitally that like people get super, especially super fans get super pissed about, right? Like, I mean, there's still grumblings all over the internet about the star Wars change when they re-release those movies, you know? So getting the originals is, is also a huge thing for people. And there's stuff you can't find streaming like, and I can't, Think of an example right off the top of my head. I'm sure you have a million, Joseph, but like there's been a few films where I'm like, why can't I find this movie? Where is it? And then I have to go to Amazon or eBay or, you know, your site, right? Um, and find if there's a physical copy of it, if I want to see it. For years, it was like that Shane McGowan documentary. Now that streams, but you couldn't find that anywhere. You had to buy a DVD. Yeah, you know? some of these and, things get stuck in rights hell and that's it. Yep. They're not going to be released, or there's just the thought that there's not enough people who would potentially buy this thing. But also, there's the the audio commentaries and the ancillary materials that, for the more academic-minded fans, mean a lot. It, it gives them a lot more value for the money, but also it enriches their experience with the film. And you're not going to find that on a sure. platform. You're not going to be streaming, you know, multiple audio commentaries. This is not going to be generally available as an option. Some places maybe, but in general, you're going to need a physical product for that a physical product that maybe only one two three thousand copies are pressed and then that's it so you need to act on this thing if you want to have it in your life yeah man audio commentaries sometimes are the best thing in the world like i remember there was a criterion collection for a show called fishing with john and when they released the dvd it was like getting a whole new season basically because it's just that dude talking and yeah yeah and those things sometimes aren't ported over into future incarnations of that thing. So no. you, you have to get that one or, you know, you miss out on the thing. Or there's like a director's cut ending that isn't available digitally, you know, which is always like, I love, like I love alternative endings to movies, especially when they change it to something more positive, And then you get to see the dark, like yeah, inner yeah. workings of the director's brain and how they wanted it to end. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I actually one example of that is the the director's cut of Fatal Attraction. The alternative ending of that is just so dark, you know. I mean, it's and I thought the the regular ending was dark, you know. And um and I mean, 
even back in like did you the, see Forrest Gump? The one he just blows his head off with a shotgun at the oh, end. Oh, come on now, Joshua. Always <laughs> <laughs> oh, the criterion edition of Forrest Gump. Death by suicide. Um, I mean, and I mean, I know for myself, like we used to drive down to like the bridge theater and other stuff when they would run director's cuts of movies. Like I went, I came down here to San Francisco to see uh blade runner director's cut when it first came out on film, just because it was like, of course, you know, you get to see like what was actually like in the director's mind when they originally shot the film versus the way it was finally released, which could oftentimes be quite different. You know, that one wasn't, hugely different but it definitely had you know had, had a little different feel to it and that the ending was was obviously changed but yeah. you know so it's fun to see that this is and it's st- it's amazing that it's still going it's you know, the funny thing is again and making the connection i look at this and i'm like of course you're doing mer- mail order i mean you've got obviously more technology involved now but it's essentially like you're you're sending out mail order you know and one of the things I still love about ordering records from discord is I get a handwritten note in every record, you know, mm-hmm. thank you for your, thank you for your order. And it doesn't matter who's working the warehouse. That's just part of their, their whole customer service scheme, you know? Yeah. It's- and that, yeah, I think that, that that's great. I mean, this is, this is completely consistent through my entire life. I mean, when I was a little kid, my father would sell these military insignia and he would send me up to the post office to mail them when I was like eight, nine, 10 years old. I bring all of his small packages up to the post office to mail around the world. And it just became part of my experiences. I would just be mailing things. So if it was, you know, later it was zines and then it was bootleg VHS tapes, which kind of set the, set me up for this real business was my more gray market business of selling the, the bootlegs of rare stuff. Um, and it's just kind of just consistently moves along. Uh, and it all seems to be just different incarnations of the same thing. You know, I put, I try to bring something of punk into this business, which ostensibly has nothing to do with punk. But I wanted to run it in a way where I understand the people who are buying from us. They want something that is going to be sent to them promptly and well packaged and sent by people who care about them, you know, will communicate with them. Again, it it engenders a sense of community. And I think people will really respond to that. There were other businesses like ours at the beginning. And a lot of the people that ran them would like get up and like smoke a doob and walk around in their pajamas all day and, and they just took a really casual approach to the thing. And the businesses fell apart because they didn't take it seriously. But I always felt work. It must work. And people respond to that. Uh, I can't send a personal note in every package. But if, if I recognize a name, someone's going to get some horrible drawing from me on their box. <laughs> like, I genuinely like them. I'm glad that, that, that we're a part of this thing together. And yeah. it makes me happy. It makes me happy to be a, alive and employed in something rather than the options that were presented to me as a kid, which would have been horrible. So <laughs> to be able to do this is terrific. Yeah. And, You're one of those it, guests that make me feel like everything's going to be okay. <laughs> we got to get you on every six months, I think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, talk a little bit about Loud Fast Philly, because we we mentioned it at the beginning, but um, we, we haven't gotten into it too much. I have to say, you know, I don't even remember who wrote, us to reconnect us and then i was like it was so amazing when i found that photograph which we'll post on the on the on the show page but um i was like going through all my stuff and i'm like holy shit i knew i recognized this guy fuck he he was in my kitchen for god's sakes they stayed with me for like a week and way back in the 90s you know and and uh but um you know when they connected me and i saw i i had read the kind of the 
the statement about nostalgia versus right here, right now. And I was like, you know what? This is exactly in line with what we're doing. At some point, we got to get Joseph on the show. And it took a long time, obviously, but you know, here we are. So talk a little bit about Loud, Fast, Philly and what was the impetus to like start that, 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 you know, interview series and, and your kind of audio uh, archive of, of people who you think are doing awesome stuff now that are, that are kind of grown up punks. Originally it was supposed to be, um, there was supposed to be just a live event of clips of different bands from Philly performing that would be at the, at this film festival in Philadelphia at Philomoca, which is the Philadelphia mausoleum of contemporary art, which is in an actual former mausoleum. Um, and the, it was the, the organization was called Cinadelphia and they were going to have a film festival of all kinds of weird stuff. So I had solicited people in the area to send VHS copies of, of bands performing from the eighties to the present that we can get edited and made into one format and then presented to an audience. And some of the people would be in the audience to talk about the experiences. That was the initial idea, but that would be ephemeral. You know, it would, it would exist as an event that a finite mm-hmm. number of people would be able to see. And then that would be the end of it. So the thought was, well, maybe I'll do a few audio interviews with different people from the Philly scene to reflect on their experiences in punk and in the city, because it was supposed to be very Philly centric. Um, And then what they're doing now, because that was always personally the most interesting part to me was I love back in the day stories, but like, what are you doing now? How did you take that forward? Do you still feel that moving through you? And the problem was if you talk to two or three people, they're going to say, but wait a second, you need to talk to this woman. You need to talk to this guy. And then as this sort of completest with the stick up his butt, I think, well, if I don't have that person on there, then someone's going to look at this thing and say it's incomplete. And with this person and this person, and what's not supposed to be a giant tapestry of voices has to become a tapestry of voices. And then when I look at it, I think, I want this thing to reflect what the city of Philadelphia looks like. It can't all be this type of person in this type of age it has to be reflective of the city because that because this thing is a, it's a love song to punk from me and a love song to the city of Philadelphia. So it needs to look like the city. Mm-hmm. So the interviews, the more interviews and longer interviews, and then it, it builds up into a thing that, that it is now where there's uh, maybe 70 something interviews with uh, probably over a hundred people or around a hundred people. Cause some of them are with multiple groups of people. Um, and that I hope that these things act as, as an oral history of the city of Philadelphia and people's involvement in that scene, but also this kind of guidebook for people. Hmm. When I would interview people, I would say to them, I'm going to ask you some questions that you and I know the answer to. We know where this, when this venue existed and where it was located. But imagine the person listening to this interview is let's say a 15-year-old girl in Indonesia. She doesn't know anything about Philadelphia. She doesn't know anything about punk. She just came across this interview series. So explain where it is. Put us into the place. Um, explain the context of, of, of these events that we're talking about um, so that anyone could listen to the thing and that hopefully that they would derive some sort of inspiration, that they would see that these people aren't that different from them. Um, and may have come up also from maybe, um, you know, they, did, they weren't to the manner born necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. So what they were able to do, they did because of their internal drive, their desire to do the thing. Uh, so I wanted to focus more on more positive things with people. I didn't want to get into everybody's drug stories and internal fighting and, and miseries. I think that those are, can be an important part of someone's personal story. 
but not what I wanted to focus on mm-hmm. for Loud Fast Philly. And in the end, I think it's been you know mostly successful. I think that that people have been able to use it as a as a primary source document and, and have been able to learn something from it and gain some sort of inspiration. And that's the, the best that I could hope to do with, with any project that I'm involved with. Well, the, the interviews are great. I mean, and I highly recommend people listen to it, uh, you know, and try to get the whole thing in if you can. It, it's obviously there's a ton of them and it takes time to get through, but there's definitely some, and we, we have some crossover. Larry Livermore was on that on your, on your show as well. And yeah, there's a few Sprouse. other people, Martin Sprouse, yeah. Cynthia, Cynthia. Yep. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's, say, those people have nothing to do with the city of Philadelphia. But they had a lot to do with me. So I thought, well, <laughs> Philadelphia and people inspired me. I mean, Sprouse's book, Threat by Example, yeah. meant so much to me as, as a young person. I mean, even the title alone, Threat by Example, yeah. was burned into my brain. But those interviews became a template for, for activity uh, and inspiration. Um, and I would say the same thing about the, you know, your podcast, your adulting. Well, I mean, I've listened to almost all of your episodes and I, wrote to you at the beginning because I felt that the two of you were kind of pointing towards the same thing. What have these people done now and how can it inspire people? And I think that especially during these sort of dystopian times and, you know, in the wake of the, the Trump presidency, you know, what the two of you do and what some others do is really critical for people. I mean, and that source of inspiration, um, it, it can't be discounted. It's really just the, I think it's really important work. We should so, probably wrap on that beautiful uh, compliment, <laughs> right? We'll get Julie to clip that and put it out. <laughs> well, I, I think, and you bring up a really good point. And I, this is the we, you know, we have a uh, we have about ten minutes left, and and so what I w- I wanted to do is bounce quickly into sort of the here and now, and and talk a little bit about what your next project's going to be, but also you touch on the Trump presidency, and you and I have difference of differences of opinion on specific policies but i'm finding right now especially with the with the court battle that's coming up and the election that's coming up and all of the things that that you know are kind of happening between now and the end of the year i'm i'm like i'm letting go of petty differences like i'm oh you know, for sure fuck yeah. this it's a wrap yeah. like i don't care like, yep and and I know there's a lot of people out there that you know that are going to play the game of of you know especially here in California. Well, you know, Biden's going to win California by a landslide, and it, that's true. But what what I'm what I'm seeing and hearing is to if if progressives like more left leaning than Biden want the change that they're talking about, they better get on the train because if we're not a coalition and he's not operating as a coalition government to some degree, you can kiss a goodbye. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's not so much like tit for tat in my opinion, as it is just getting your voice heard and saying, okay, what I'm most in support of is a a change, (laughs) you know, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are like, oh, well, he's the, you know, he's the, 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 you know, the DNC candidate and all that other stuff. And that's fine, but no time for that right now. He's got, he, to me right now is listening. And now's the time to get your opinions heard because once it's over, if you want to play, you know, bitter beer face for, for the next four years or eight years, you know, be my guest, be miserable, but 
get your voice out there now. And, you know, so I want to hear a little bit about what your next project is and then how you're engaging. Cause I know you engage pretty seriously locally and I know it's much harder now. And, you know, um, before the pandemic, you, you, you were posting, you know, shots of you doing volunteer work, being at events, you know, and really trying to get people out and vote, um, for this election. And so I'd love to hear about your current project and kind of what you're doing, you know, with, with local politics. Cause I know Philly's, uh, near and dear to your heart. So. It is. Uh, but I think that what you were saying was not, I mean, not everyone initially loved Biden. I was an advocate for Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. Uh, I did my volunteer work for him because I saw in him reflected the, the values that I liked. He, he had a youthful charisma. I thought that he was really smart. I loved Pete and I wanted to see him get that position. I wanted to see him get the nomination when that was no longer viable. Uh, Biden became the man. And for anyone who who is certainly far more to the left than me, I'm not a leftist, but those people, if they want the voices of those for whom they advocated to have a space at the table, they will be at Biden's table. He may not be as left-leaning as them, but what voice, how would they be amplified under four more years of Trump? Um, and what will this country look like then? So for yeah, I want Biden to be the far right. You know what I mean? Like, I want Biden to be as right as the country goes. And, and yeah, I, I mean, the country saying. doesn't agree with you. I mean, your friends may agree with you, but there are lots of other people in the country who are, are not to the left. And I think that in working with, say, an organization like the Lincoln Project, some on the far left will turn their nose up and say, these are Republican operatives, their values aren't reflective of ours. Man, they are doing great work. Their commercials are sure. hard-hitting. Unlike a DNC commercial, they're not going to go into committee to decide what pronoun needs to be used for this commercial. They're going to do the things that are going to hit Trump the hardest. And it's effective. So one of the groups that I work with is an organization called Veterans for Responsible Leadership. Uh, I am not a veteran, but because of my father's involvement in the military and being around a lot of military people, uh, I'm very, say, comfortable amongst military people. And I think that I can kind of speak their language. I'm very interested in history. And when I saw what this group was doing, I wanted to be involved with them because I thought these are people that folks will listen to, that a, most of the, of the U.S. still respects the military, despite how we've kind of fractionalized into different spaces. Um, and they did a commercial with the Lincoln Project where the founder of the group uh, came on. He said, I'm a former Navy SEAL, combat veteran, uh, trauma surgeon in the hospital, and he comes out to call Trump a coward and a, and a phony and all this. And that commercial was like a lightning bolt in people's heads because here is this, this handsome, articulate man who was a Navy SEAL who is coming. And he says, I am pro-choice and pro-Second Amendment. So, and this person is turning on Trump. And this gives other people from the right who find Trump to be distasteful, disgusting, a, a place to go where they say it's okay to vote for Biden. I don't need to turn in my conservative credentials in order to mm -hmm. make vote. Right. And um, the, the work that they've been doing, have been putting out, I think has been really, really effective. Um, and I'll just mention that the other thing that, that I work with is um, there's a Facebook page for Dr. Jill Biden, the wife of Joe Biden. Uh, and the, the page has grown rather large. It has over 14,000 people on it. After Trump made his comments about people in the military being losers and suckers, 
Um, you know, this was reported a few weeks ago in the Atlantic and then confirmed by other news sources. This obviously hit the military community very hard and people mm-hmm. were very upset by this, especially those who are already inclined to hate him. But spontaneously on the Dr. Jill group, people who took part in the group started posting pictures of family members that had served in the military. And they would say, this is my father. He helped to liberate Auschwitz. What he saw there, he bore on his shoulders for the rest of his life. He's my hero. He's no loser and sucker. This is my husband, USMC, 23 years of service. He's my hero. And these things started to pour in. And as a moderator, I would have to check all of these along with the other people in the group to make sure that everything's kosher before it goes out to the public. Because we wanted to run the group along the lines of Pete Buttigieg's rules of the road, meaning that people had to be respectful to one another and kind. We didn't want it to be a horrible cesspool like you know most of the internet is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they came in initially in, in some dozens, and then ultimately there were hundreds of these testimonies from people they were all met by these really glowing replies from, from people who didn't know them who would say, your brother who died in Vietnam was a hero. Thank, thank you for your service. Thank you for doing this. And I thought that it was just marvelous. And it was the exact opposite of what you expect from the Internet because it was something spontaneous and positive that brought people together in a good way. And no one was so concerned with the level of... Um, how, what degree of left or right these individuals are. They were united because they had a vision of what this country should be and want to see that achieved. So to me, that's patriotism. If you want to live in the shining city on the hill, you have to actively take part into making it live up to what it purports to stand for. I, I could not agree more. And it's so nice to hear a positive story about uh, Facebook page because usually it gets inundated with trolls and you know and whataboutism and all the other nonsense and you know my my and I, I want to ask you this too uh, Joseph what's your what's your most recent books I know you're an avid reader as well um, what are you what are you into right now what's the what's the latest and greatest uh, the book that I just read uh, was actually really one that people surprised a few years ago called The Warmth of Other Suns uh, about mm-hmm. the Great Migration uh, and it's not a subject that I was especially interested in coming into it, but I had heard that the book was great. I heard the author on, on some different podcasts. I knew it had won the Pulitzer Prize. But as soon as I started reading it, it I don't know if either you read the book or you know the book. No, but I'm, uh, I, I, I actually, I saw you post oh, okay. about it. Well, so <laughs> um, it. It tells the story of the Great Migration through various uh, narratives of, of individuals and the personal stories really are how it's communicated and it's just beautifully written and completely uh, uh entrancing so i just thought what was it called one more time it's called the warmth of other sons amazing uh, uh she won the pulitzer prize for that book and she just uh wrote a new book um on cast cast is nice it's a, oh it's, I, I yeah i heard her i think i heard her on npr yeah yeah she's been around now recently for the new book um but really, really just a fantastic book because I was so drawn into the stories of the individuals and, and that's always a great in is where you could follow someone. So it reads like the best of fiction, which is, you know, what I read a lot of as well. Oh Yeah. That's the best. Yeah. I just, I I'm finishing up, um, uh, Republic of lies by Anna Merlin. What and it? it's, so it's a, it's basically about conspiracy theories Oh, oh yeah, yeah. and it doesn't necessarily, I, when I first got it, I thought it was going to be all about like Q and Alex Jones. And cause I saw her on that new frontline documentary talking about the book and it's not, 
I mean, it, there's a lot of that, but it also deals with some other very interesting, you know, left wing conspiracy theories as well. And, you know, it's uh, especially around science, which it just was, it was surprising and refreshing. And, you know, I had to suspend some of my own belief system to get through it. And I feel like it's made me a better person, quite honestly. That's <laughs> so, That's the best you know, book and have. Yeah. And then so uh, you said you don't read anymore. <laughs> I goes in phases, you know, and uh, this year I haven't, I haven't, I don't think I've read a book this year. Honestly, I've got a stack. The pandemic in. would give you perhaps more time to do that. <laughs> I have so much less time during this pandemic somehow. I don't know what happened. So is there a new project you're working on other than the, the, the political stuff? Uh, not particularly. No, just really okay. those things. I mean, a lot of what I could potentially do, I can't really actually do. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I just, try to have some sort of positive involvement in, in these things. Yeah. Um, so what's your, what's your prediction for mayor Pete for the, for Buttigieg when, when, when Biden wins? Uh, I think he's definitely going to come into increasingly more prominence. I mean, as, yeah. as the saying goes, no one who, no one is ever hurt by running for president. So right. his profile was certainly raised very dramatically. Um, and because he's a military veteran and a Rhodes scholar, he's someone that people will go to, to ask questions to in, in the media. And he's willing to speak on Fox, which which some on the left won't do for various reasons. Um, so he's he has a voice over there. He winds up reaching some other people. So I imagine there may be a cabinet position or something for him. I mean, I don't know the dude personally, um, but I think that we will probably be seeing much more of him in the future. And also, he's young, so he has many years to do stuff. Certain other people yep. are very old, and they're probably going to be dead, <laughs> we hope, like a certain president. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I agree. I think he's going to be on the cabinet somewhere. Um, I would hope, or maybe, you know, a, a top advisor. Um, he's a smart guy. You know, I met him in Austin. I got the pleasure of going to one of the town halls last year at South by Southwest. And, um, I met him and his husband. Um, I would vote for his husband as well. He was just absolutely unbelievably like warm and charming and, Really, really excited about his husband's, you know, potential growth as far as his career and was super supportive. And the, seeing that kind of like family value really excites me when people are clearly in love and clearly supporting each other in their endeavors is, is a, it's super refreshing, you know? Yeah, it's no, like, I'm glad you had that reaction to Chastin because I saw him speak twice, once really early in the campaign at an education forum. Mm-hmm. And his ability to express genuine empathy and a connection with the audience, I found really impressive, especially because he's very young and not a professional speaker. You know, he was just kind of brought on the scene because of his husband running for president. And then I saw him speak a second time in Philly. It was kind of a large, it was a high donor fundraiser thing that I got to weasel in on. So I was, at, I get to go to a rich person's house and eat rich people food, which is great. <laughs> um, and, you know, he, he's my favorite. Up, pretty working class environment. Yeah. So he's kind of speaking yeah. to a different class of people, but he, the warmth that he communicated so effectively to them, I just thought was just so impressive. And also he said he liked my scarf at the end when I got to meet him. So that like, well, there you go. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, both of them I think are, are really uh, two, two very impressive individuals. And I think, yeah, I sat, I mean, I sat right behind him. So I talked to him throughout and during the breaks and, That's great. you know, and got to hear about their rescue dogs and, you know, anybody that rescues dogs for me, it's, that's, it's a wrap. Like we're, we're going to be lifelong friends. So yeah, I I think some of the the nicest people I met was been working through the Buddha judge campaign because it drew in people who 
who were just so kind. And they really wanted to keep out any kind of negative or nasty elements. So it was a very genuine kindness in those people that supported him and, and, the, and how they tried to keep that alive in all of their different forums that they, they were running. And I had never seen anything like that before. I mean, I'm, I wasn't involved in political campaigns before, but it seemed to be in such stark contrast to what I had seen in other places. And it, it really was very inspiring for me to see that. Nothing to do with punk but yet still had this like very pure and welcoming and kind ethos. And in Donald Trump's America of 2016 to 2020, that carries a lot of weight. It really means something to see people behave in that way in contrast to the, just the utter meanness. Yep. So we're at, we're at an hour. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to sort of list off your, the, you know, the, the websites we'll put links up, but just one more time, go through, you know, diabolic and, you know, anything else you're working on right now so that people can in the archive, obviously the interview archive, um, just so people know. Um, and then I just want to thank you for coming on, man. I mean, really, I know this was like a kind of a, a <laughs> an adventure to get on the show, but I, I really, really appreciate it. Like, and this is exactly almost precisely what I thought the, the, the experience was going to be like. I mean, I just, you know, just is like nice to have a conversation with you. Thank um, you. No, it's, it's truly my honor. I mean, I, I, the work that you two do, I think is, is really crucial and, and I enjoy listening to it. So to be a part of it for me is, is great. And I thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, the, I guess the project is most reflective of me would be loud, fast Philly. And that's at loudfastphilly.com And all of the interviews are there, but also they're on all of the podcasts places uh so you can listen to them on itunes or ask your alexa to play and hear my dulcet tones come in through uh, uh alexa um and i should mention that the project was done in conjunction with my friend karen kirchhoff who's a photographer who took these beautiful black and white portraits of most of the people that i interviewed she couldn't do everybody so it's as much her in her portraits of these people as me and that's why I don't so much consider it a podcast because I really want people to be able to see her photographs and you would have to go to the website to be able to see those. Uh Um, If you would like to keep me eating food and living in this beautiful row house in Northwest Philadelphia, um, uh, www.diabolicdvd.com, which you probably should just look at the link on there because of the spelling, but diabolic DVD is, is the business and um, that hopefully will keep going for a while. Uh, Zoomfilms.com is for our film screenings, which we hope will begin again um, more regularly next year once we get rid of a certain pandemic. Um, and then there are other projects uh, like Veterans for Responsible Leadership, which uh, I work with, but I can't say that they're my projects. Uh, but this stuff is is out there and accessible. And, uh, and I welcome anyone to communicate with me. Uh, don't write to me through the loud fast site because it's just filled with Russian spam. <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll also put links up on the show and, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks everybody a, for listening. As always, we're donating pay- Patreon to hospitality house SF. My 50th birthday is on Monday. So I'm asking people happy to birthday. Big deep. Um, so I couldn't have spent my birthday weekend any better than spending an hour with you. Oh, and nice. thank you, Joseph. And, uh, always Joshua, my, uh, my, my co-host and pal. And, we don't uh, actually know each other. <laughs> How far away do you live from one another? We're across, just across the bay. Oh, okay. Just a, just, just a bridge away. So you and, never uh, do it in person. It's always, we used to. Yeah. But you know, 
And we have a studio just sitting there. We have there. a studio. It has oh. a light and everything, like an on-air light. It's so you can't yeah. like, put yourself in a giant bubble or something or wrap yourself in bubble wrap. I'm never leaving my house again unless I have to. <laughs> Honestly, so I, love, I love this so much. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>